Did the Seahawks just get back on track? A convincing win over the Jaguars makes a compelling case. Dick Fain from 950 KJR Sports joins us to discuss that, Seattle's suddenly elite defense, and more. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with producer Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Another another episode that I get to be privy to your dulcet tones, Jackson, so I'm feeling great, man. How are you? <laughs> get out of here. I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. Really excited about today's shows, and um, you know, I think that despite Seattle's recent struggles, we all went into last week's game counting on a win, and we got it. I think more than that, though, we saw a level of assertiveness and cohesion that's been missing since week one. Seahawks looked aggressive on both sides of the ball en route to a 31-7 victory over Jacksonville. And with the pin out of Russell Wilson's finger and entering a bye, there's a case to be made that this team could manufacture a run at the postseason after all. We're going to dive into all of it. And joining us to do so is one of my favorite people covering Seattle sports. You know him as the co-host of KJR 950's Drive Time Show with Dave Softy Mahler and as the play-by-play voice of the Seattle Storm. One of the best I've ever heard at combining humor, logic, and professionalism, he is Dick Fain. Dick, thanks for making the time. Wow, thank you. I appreciate that introduction. That's awesome. Thanks, Jackson. Totally, man. I, I, I know you got a lot going on, so you making the time means a lot. And when I think about all the things that someone can do for a living, your jobs rank extremely high on the list for me. So just take a minute and tell us how you got to where you're at. Well, I always wanted to do this um, from the time that I had like a little recorder and a, and a tape deck um, in the late 70s, early 80s. And I would walk around. My, my folks kind of realized that I like to watch the TV and, and do my own play by play when I was like five, six years old. I think they said the first time I ever did it was with the uh, championship Sonics team in 79. Wow. And I'd... Uh, you know, I'd say JJ to Gus to DJ, and I knew all the players when I was like five years old. So uh, they were like, all right, well, let's get this kid a microphone and a tape deck. And uh, I would just walk around and sit down in front of a TV because my, my family was always watching sports. I mean, sports was always on the television. So there was always a game to be had. No matter what TV I went into, there was a, there was a game on, and I'd just sit down and I'd start. I wish I had all the tapes. You know, that would have been pretty <laughs> I cool. Do to, too. I got to play I that too. on the air right now. But, uh, yeah, and so I kind of always knew. I'm a, very unusual that I was one of those, you know, one out of 100 or maybe even more that actually knew exactly what they wanted to do before they were even in high school. And so I could kind of tailor – my education to that, and I took broadcast journalism at uh, at the University of Washington before it uh, before that department you know crumbled. Uh, Elise Woodward and I were like the last graduates from the broadcast journalism school, so we like to joke that we were the ones that uh, that took it down at the <laughs> University of Washington. And uh, so you know, and then just just finding a place, finding a home here in Seattle. I was I was not uh, I was not usual in the sense that in the broadcast journalism field, most people want to get out and get on the air as fast as possible. And I get that. And and that's a great way to go. Um, but they've got to go to Eugene and they got to go to Medford and they got to go to Boise and they got to go to Yakima and they got to go to Spokane. And then hopefully if the, if that's their dream, they finally get back to Seattle when they're like 40, you know, and I'm like, you know what? No, I mean, my family's here. I love it here. 
I'm going to do Seattle sports in Seattle. And if that means I got to wait a little bit before I get on the air, it means I got to wait a little bit before I get on the air. So, uh, you know, I did all the producing and the technical directing, running the boards, you know, at midnight, one o'clock in the morning. I was like, I'm just going to do that here. And and if it works out to the point where I get on the air, great. And if it doesn't, then I'll find something else to do. But uh, it worked out really well. And I've been at KJR for now 20, next year will be 25 years. That's incredible, man. Well, I mean, you were born for it, you know, and, and it's really cool. Like, I, I think my favorite part of that story is knowing what you wanted to do young. Because every kid, most kids, I know what they want to do when they're young, but do they actually see it through as they become a teenager, college student, have to start making money, have a family, all of that? The fact that you held your line is is actually really, really inspiring. And I got to say, you know, over the last couple of years, I've been fortunate enough to fill in for Softy a few times. And folks, this man is a true pro. Like a lot of you out there, I grew up listening to sports radio, um, but being in the studio, seeing how the sausage is made, it's a totally different experience. And Dick, the ease with which you run the boards, you manage the clock, and still deliver what sounds like effortlessly knowledgeable opinions, it's remarkable to witness in person. It sounds so easy listening on the radio, like, ah, I could do that. And then you get in the (laughs) studio and you're like, oh, this guy's hustling. This guy is working. So it's, I just want to give a shout out. This guy is the real deal. No, I, I appreciate that, Jackson. I think it's the same way when I do basketball games as it is when I'm, when I'm hosting shows. It's all about the preparation. I mean, Russ talks about all the time, right? Separations and the preparation. And, he, and he's exactly right. I mean, I've got a routine and I get up in the morning and I got my, I got my coffee right here with my, with my kids on it. And, and I sit and, First, I go old school, and I read the newspaper. Look at this. I'm a newspaper reader, hard Love copy. Love you know, that. even though I've read all the stories online already, <laughs> before before the newspaper even comes, I still just like to it's sit and read. It's the principle that matters. Exactly. Sit and read the newspaper, and then uh, and then I just start hammering on Twitter like you do. And, and I get all my information, and then I collect it, and then I, I organize it. And once I've collected it and I've organized it, then I'm like, okay, I've got my show. Here's what I want to do. And and I'm more, you know, Softy and I are different. You know, Softy has a just an unbelievable gift of gab and just an unbelievable gift of being able to just like pull things out of thin air and spend 20 minutes talking about it. I don't have that gift. I've got to be much more prepared. And this is kind of how I want to, I don't prepare word for word, obviously, what I want to say, but I like have ideas. I organize them. And so by the time I get in the studio with you, then, you know, it, I've already I've already kind of run through it. I've already done it in my mind. Like Russ says, you know, he's already he's already run through these plays in his mind and how they're going to look. So once the once the real bullets come and once the defensive linemen are coming at him, he's already seen through it. You know, he's already seen it many many times and he knows what's going to happen. And it and it's true. It just makes the show a lot easier um, when you're when you prepare like that. Well, witnessing how you do that certainly has informed the process for this show. So I I appreciate that. But we are here to talk a little Seahawks. Let's do it. Roughly halfway through the season now, Seattle's three and five. I think that's their worst record at this point of the season in 10 years. But we did see some life from them on Sunday. What stood out to you most about that game? What stood out the most to me, I think, is that this new defensive strategy that they have employed over the last two or three weeks is really starting to take hold. 
And, you know, I, I've kind of been beating the drum even prior to the Jacksonville game. I think it was about two weeks ago, I think after the, the Pittsburgh game, where I was like, well, wait a second here. Let's, let's take a look at these numbers defensively. I mean, look where they have gone since the Rams game. And it's really now been a five-game sample size of, you know, Rams, 49ers, Steelers, Saints, and Jaguars where they're a top five unit in the NFL over those five games. And they look completely different than the defensive unit we saw that would just be soft zone, let Kirk Cousins hit for 15, and then 18, and then 12, and then 20. Okay, yeah, we're not going to be, get beat over the top, but <laughs> if you're giving up 12 yards a pass, then it doesn't really matter if you get beat over the top because you're going to give up a touchdown uh, anyway. So I love the more aggressive style. Um, and – you know, to those that want to poo-poo a, you know, a, a win over Jacksonville, say well, it's, it's only Jacksonville, true, that's a disaster of a football team, but why isn't every team beating them 31-7? to You know, that, why are they beating yes. the Dolphins? Why are they staying in other games? If it was so easy to beat Jacksonville by 24 points, then they should be losing by 24 points every single game. Well, that's just it, right? We, we have this idea that the difference between the best team in the NFL and the worst team in the NFL is like the difference between a 10 and a 95 but in reality, it's like the difference between a 98 and a 95. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're they're all so good. These are these guys were all the best players in college. You know, these are still on the Jaguars, a bunch of all conference dudes, you know, and uh, and millionaires playing from playing football. So I think that was my my biggest thing. We we anticipated a win in that game, but I needed to see something that wasn't 16 to 13, something that yes. wasn't just, okay, hey, we ground out the game and got a field goal at the end, and whew, we're three and five. They went out there, and, and they kicked some ass. And I'm glad you started with the defense because Jacksonville ran 74 plays. You know, if there's, if there's one thing that I think has stuck as a criticism of the Seahawks defense since those first few games when everything could be criticized about them is just having a tough time getting off the field. And, you know, Jacksonville ran 74 plays and didn't score until the 74th play. They ran 73 scoreless plays in that game. And that to me is incredible. No matter who you're playing. Got some numbers for you that that backs up what you're saying. And those five games, they have given up as a defense 90 points in 58 drives. That figures out to 1.55 points per drive. I mean, that is elite. It is. That is like L almost LOB elite. It absolutely and is. And their, their points per play, you mentioned the 72 plays without giving up a point. They're at 0.29 points per play in the, in the, during the, the entire season, not just in those five games. That is the best they've been since 2014. Whew. So so now you're talking about a defense that, yes, will be tested next week, maybe, against Aaron Rodgers. If it's not Aaron Rodgers, then they'll be, they won't quite be as tested if it's Jordan Love, but then they'll be tested with Kyler Murray after that, and those numbers are going to go down. There's no question about it. I mean, I, I don't think anybody should expect this defense to, be, to hold the Packers and, and Cardinals to 20 points apiece, but if you can hold them somewhere in that, those mid-20s, and give yourself a chance to win at the end, and then you know the Houston's come and the Detroit's come and the Washington's come, and then and you can start racking up games where you're holding your opponents to like ten, like you did with Jacksonville when you're playing those uh, those really bad teams. By the end of the year, I believe this is going to be a top ten defense in the wow. NFL in scoring. Okay, that 
That's bold, but I mean the numbers have backed well, up over right the last now. month. They're I know. 11th right That's now, That's crazy. so they don't have to go very far, right. and they got five more <laughs> right. games against crap right. teams. So, so yeah, and and so that brings up a couple of questions. The first one is, what is the number one thing that you credit this turnaround to? Because coming out of the Vikings game, it looked horrific. Yes, yes. A uh, couple things. One, the trust level uh, that that Ken Norton and Pete Carroll have started to show in these, in these players, particularly their corners and, and then the improvement of the corners. Um, you know, they, they have been shuffling that position. They made them, I would say they made a mistake not shoring up the position, but I'm not exactly sure what they could have done without really any draft picks. And there was really no free agent corners out there other than Shaq Griffin that you could have potentially gone and gone and signed. So they were kind of stuck uh, between a rock and a hard place there. But Trey Brown has come in and looked pretty good. DJ Reed has moved to a side that he has said he's more comfortable in. So while they don't have top 15 cornerbacks at either side, I think you may, by the end of the season, say that, yeah, they've got two corners that are at least starting caliber cornerbacks. They have brought Jamal Adams down towards the line of scrimmage where he belongs. I mean, he's a linebacker. He's not a safety. So play him like a linebacker and let Quandre Diggs kind of roam the, the center field there and, and be able to make some plays, make some picks like he did in the, in the last game. I believe he had a pick in the Rams game, if I'm not mistaken. He did. Yeah, he, he had the one in the end zone against Stafford. That's right. That's right. So, so you know, that the, all those things put together um, are leading to this defensive turnaround. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Quandre Diggs because he is he, – he might be the best defender on this team right now. Uh, I certainly think he's the highest impact defender. And, you know, for the first month of the season – it didn't look like they had a plan for Jamal Adams, which was really, really concerning given what they traded for him and the contract they gave him. And they they were asking him to be a part of this too high safety deal. And you can't bring, you know, we all want him closer to the line of scrimmage because like you said, that's where he's most effective, but you can't do that unless you've got a plan for the space that he's vacating in the secondary. And, and I think that the confidence that they've had in DJ Reed and Trey Brown and Sidney Jones played much better this last game as well, um, is allowing Quandre Diggs to, I think, cheat a little bit and, and gamble a little bit instead of saying, holy shit, we're in trouble on both sides, so I need to wait and see which side we're in the most trouble on and then go over there. I think that he's able to say, okay, I trust that DJ's got this guy. I think you know, quarterback's going to be looking this other way. I'm going to cheat that way a little bit. And you saw that on the interception against Trevor Lawrence. He committed to that so early in that play. And that's the type of anticipation that this defense had for a long time, right? The LOB era defense, all those guys knew where the play was going. They trusted their ability and their teammates' ability to handle their responsibilities. They could commit and go. And that's been gone. I think that's been the number one thing that that we've been missing. So to see that from Diggs has been great. And it, and it allows Bobby Wagner to then just go get the ball and Jamal Adams to just go get the ball, which is what they're best at. They're not, Bobby's not having to worry about covering 20 yards of space in the middle of the field. And, and I think that for me has been the most encouraging thing. Now, second question for you. Yeah. How sustainable do you think this is? It sounds like you think they can keep this going, but 
is what we're seeing just a matter of the fact that they've played three poor passing offenses in a row? I mean, you mentioned Aaron Rodgers. You mentioned they got two games against Kyler Murray. They got one more against Stafford. Can this defense playing the way that they are hold those teams to 20 to 24 points and give this offense a chance to win those games? I kind of wish these next two games were like in December versus right now because I still think they are a defense in transition. They're still trying to learn. Uh, Daryl Taylor's getting better. Jordan Brooks is getting better. I think those two guys are going to be studs. I think we're going to look back at last year's draft and go, damn. I mean, Jordan Brooks, Daryl Taylor, Damian Lewis, that's so a pretty too. solid draft in, in 2020. And we're already starting to we're already starting to see that. They're not ready yet. Um, so I wish those games were, were a little bit more towards the back half of the season because, yeah, they're going to give up. I, I just hope that they I hope that they play in the next two weeks to the point where even the critics of the Seahawks defense can say, all right, you know, we, they, they played all right because they're not going to they're not going to shut them down, but they can't give up 37 either. Um, right. because you're not going to, you know, you're not going to to be able to outscore Green Bay and, and Arizona if you're you're trying to play up into the in the high 30s. I just think that the the Hawks defense has actually played some tougher opponents than some of the other teams that are ranked in the top 10. I kind of did a I kind of did a deep dive of of the top 10 scoring defenses in the NFL and they have actually other than Pittsburgh and New Orleans, interestingly enough, the two defenses that Geno Smith lost to Pittsburgh and New Orleans are the only two teams in the top 10 that have actually played fewer bottom five and bottom 10 offenses this year than the Seahawks had. Everybody else ranked in the top 10 have been feasting on the bottom five offenses of the league. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're ranked in the in the top 10. So I am I think the Seahawks will continue to slowly improve on defense. You're right. They have to eventually, when they have a lot of trust, they eventually have to take some more chances because they're going to have to turn over the opposition. They're going to have to give their offenses some short fields. If you really want to be a team that goes, not only goes to the playoffs, but goes deep into the playoffs, I don't think you can just be a good defensive team without causing some havoc without causing some sacks and fumbles and interceptions, you got to be able to do that. And right now, they haven't shown the ability to be that team that can cause havoc, that can cause turnovers. They've just shown the ability to be able to hold teams down under their scoring average. You're going to need a little bit more than that, maybe not to make the playoffs, because I think they can I think they can make the playoffs with a healthy Russ plus the defense we're seeing. I think they can get to nine wins, which should be able to get it done but to go any deeper than that, yes, we're going to need to see more havoc from that defense. I agree. I agree. And I think the goal with this defense, you know, it we want to see shutdown and and all of this stuff, which which they were. Uh really the last two games. I mean, they've given up 17 points in regulation uh over the last two weeks. That's insane. Um, but really I think the goal is when you have a team like Russell Wilson, I want to talk about the offense in a minute, and DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, that if you can give your offense a chance where you say, hey, if you guys can score three touchdowns and add a couple field goals, we can win this game, right? You don't have to go out there and score five touchdowns in order to win because the way they play defense really only gives the offense eight to 10 drives a game. And so you should be able to win if you score on 50% of your drives, uh, especially if the majority of those are touchdowns. And, and Seattle has shown the ability to do that year over year. So I want to I take a look at what we saw on offense from 
sun or on Sunday, because I think it's the best we've seen from Geno Smith and not just because they were playing a poor defense and got bailed out by like a trillion penalties, but because they were aggressive. And the thing I was most pleased about was how relentlessly involved Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf were. We can start with Lockett, who received over half of Geno Smith's targets. He got 13 targets, caught 12 of them for 142 yards. What were you seeing there? Because he's been the forgotten man since Russell got hurt. Especially when Geno's been the quarterback. He's been the forgotten man. Geno seemed to kind of lock into DK in those first two games and completely ignore Tyler Lockett. And I Even just in think, the Rams game. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think they're doing a better job of getting the ball into those guys' hands quicker. And I think we're going to see that more from Shane Waldron and Russell Wilson going forward. It's not going to be just the run, 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 play action, deep shot. I think we're going to see more of that short passing game. And I think, you know, Greg Cosell was on with Ian a couple of weeks ago, and he said something that kind of stuck with me, and that is this Shane Waldron offense takes time to master. And you have pulled Russell – not only is Russell Wilson new to the offense, you've only given Russell Wilson a small handful of games to even – play and practice in the offense before he went down for a month and so now you're kind of starting back where you you know you should be a month further in Russell Wilson's development with Shane Waldron than you are so I think this offense is going to be a work in progress over the course of the year and I really do think that both you know injuries aside I mean they have to stay healthy but I think once December rolls around you're going to see a defense that's clicking and an offense that's clicking and I do believe that you know, Seattle's going to be talked about amongst those teams that, hey, who's the, you know, who's the team you don't want to play yeah. in the wild card round? Who's that team? That, and, and I think we're going to be seeing a lot of teams that are praying to God that Seattle doesn't sneak into the playoffs at nine and eight because they're going to be that nine and eight team that nobody wants to see in January. Well, at the risk of getting out over our skis a little too much, I hope that if they do get into the wild card round, that they don't revert. And that they yeah. stay, you know, with this aggressive, quick passing approach on offense and and playing the defense the way that they are in the playoffs. Cause that that's been the most frustrating thing for me is is seeing the way they've kind of turtled up in the playoffs the last few years. But uh I think <clears throat> like you said, with with Lockett, he's someone that has benefited, I think, a great deal from this incredible mind meld that he's had with Russell Wilson. Uh, he knows where to get to when the play breaks down and he's able to take advantage. He's so good at catching the ball with his hands, even though these tiny little baby hands, he's <laughs> able to get them exactly where they need to be when they need to be there. And, and Russell Wilson is probably the best at putting the ball inside a teacup 40 yards downfield and so they've been able to make that happen but once you lose that aspect with Russ Lockett does become a little bit more limited and he is someone that you need to win early in the routes and so it was so great to just see that on literally a quarter of the plays that they ran they threw it to Tyler Lockett and and he paid off quarter of the plays he gets opportunities and he had 60 percent of their yards so I mean, really, really tremendous production. And then on the other side, DK Metcalf, who is the headliner, of course, he only got six targets, but he caught all of them, 43 yards, two touchdowns. And I think my favorite part of it was they threw him a jump ball in the end zone and just said, go get it. They didn't wait for him to be open. They just said, you're the best player on the field. Go win. 
And it wasn't as if Shaq Griffin's defense was terrible either. He was in great position. I mean, he just got he just got mauled by a bigger, stronger man. And that as as impressive as that catch was, I was even more impressed with the little shot to the to the left side of the field, just that little quick four or uh-huh. five yard, and he bounced it outside and outran cornerbacks to the corner and got an extra, I don't know, eight or ten yards off it. I was like, that he went from zero to sixty in like two seconds. It's insane. It's and, insane. And so that's that impressed me more only because we hadn't seen him have the opportunity to do that before. Where we, I think we all kind of knew, even though they don't throw the lob into the corner of the end zone very much to him. I think all Seahawks fans were like, "Oh yeah, DK can come up with that play. That's not a problem at all." And I don't think it really surprised us that DK went over Shaq Griffin for a touchdown. But that little one to the left side, we were like, "Oh wait a second, you can do that too," because oh, we thought crazy. you were a guy that that could only either go up and get a ball or just straight line speed it, so you can catch a ball stopped and then accelerate around a cornerback, oh, my God, what can't this guy do? Well, I think if you were to inject every player in NFL secondaries with the truth truth serum and ask them which wide receiver do you want to tackle the least, he's probably – it's probably him and A.J. Brown, and that's the end of the list. Absolutely. I mean, it's it, the list is short in, in the NFL. It's, it's Derrick Henry, D.K. Metcalf, and you're probably right, A.J. Brown. I mean, everybody else – I don't think a safety's having any problem just putting a big thump on somebody and not worrying about it. Those three yep. guys, yeah, that's you're getting more punishment than you're dishing out punishment when you hit them. We've uh, we've seen DK's progression year to year. Um, there is and has been no doubt that he's an amazing player, but there's been one element that's been missing from his game. We haven't before seeing that superstar Julio Jones-esque brand of, hey, look how fucking strong my hands are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, no joke, if he can manage to truly incorporate that level of hand-catching reliability to a game that already resembles that of a freight train ablaze, we're in full-blown Thanos territory here. So, (laughs) Jackson, I know you're going to have to keep it in your pants answering this one. I'm not even wearing pants. Dick, (laughs) Dick, how bullish are you on uh, DK continuing this trajectory towards the tier of the elites, like the truly, truly dominant receivers in the NFL? Well, what's amazing is he's got, I think, I want to say like 56 targets is all in the season, and he's got eight touchdowns. Cooper Cup's leading the league in touchdowns with 10, and he's got, like 90 some targets. I mean, DK's just his his scoring production is almost that of Cooper Cup who has another half more than half again as, as many targets. And so I think as as Shane Waldron learns how to use DK more, I mean, this is a guy that should be a consistent now with 17 games, a consistent 1500 yard 15 touchdown wide receiver and and that is going to put him in and this is a name that Hugh Millen used on draft day that puts him in Calvin Johnson territory for the next eight years and that's and that's and I mean that's that's what Hugh said he was he was like sorry but this is what I see on film he's Calvin Johnson yeah and so we were like what the heck really okay I mean (laughs) we're gonna hold you to it but he's he's been right he's still been producing at such a physically imposing level with a backup quarterback. And it wasn't like, Oh, I need to kind of acclimate to this. It was immediate. It was the first drive. He scored a touchdown on Geno Smith's first drive. Yep. And then, I mean, obviously the, 
the target share has been a little concerning and the distribution of those targets. But I mean, he's making these plays with a backup quarterback. So, I mean, when Russ comes back, you would hope that there is a springboard from that point as well. You, you got to think so. I mean, so every year, if you look at the league leaders in touchdown percentage, so and that that's just how often a quarterback throws for a touchdown on any given pass attempt. It's usually between eight and a half and nine percent. DK Metcalf is scoring a touchdown on 14% of his targets. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, at least they're looking for him in the red. That tells you they're looking for him in the red zone, but they need to look for him between the 20s a little bit more. Too. Totally. Totally. So I want to uh, I want to kind of go off of that because we've been talking about the passing game. And Dick, you and I have had some spirited discussions over the past few years with this team. And I want to revisit one of them because I think it's particularly relevant to this conversation. But before we do, I also want to give you some flowers on another debate we had. Okay. <laughs> I haven't had the opportunity to do this, but the first time I co-hosted with you on KJR, the Seahawks had a decision to make with Earl Thomas, who was at that point my favorite player on a team full of favorite players. I banged the table, I think literally, for this team to give Earl a third contract while you were pressing the brakes pretty hard on it. And... uh <laughs> Didn't take long for you to be proven right on that one. So I just wanted to make sure credit was given where it's due. So knowing that and and knowing that I I could be wrong on this one too, but you and I have also spent a decent amount of time kind of debating the value of emphasizing the run versus just leaning into the pass. And anyone who's been reading Cigar Thoughts for the last few years or listening to this podcast knows what side of the line I fall on. But I do think there's some nuance that gets lost in that conversation, and I've been guilty of omitting it at times, and that is play to your strengths. I think you can be extremely effective as an offense running the ball a lot, like the Ravens or the Titans, yep. or by passing it a ton, Bills, Bucks, Chiefs, etc. We all know that Pete Carroll wants to run the ball, establish toughness, set the tone, all of that stuff. Looking at this team's roster right now, their talent allocation, etc., what do you think is the best approach for the 2021 Seattle Seahawks the rest of the way? I think what we saw against Jacksonville, and that is the – there was balance, but there was – the short passing game was almost used as an extension of the run game. And and like you said, it has to do with what type of talent that you have. And I am – the reason I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of the run game is not necessarily – because I think that that way scores more points. It's because I think that way prevents the opposition from scoring more points. I think that the run game um, gets your offense in rhythm. It leaves your defense on the sidelines. It holds teams down in the you know in the high teens, low twenties when you're when you're controlling the ball like that. But yes, I do agree with you that when you have a DK Metcalf and a Tyler Lockett and now a a tight end that I'd really like to see used more. Hell, I thought I thought Gerald Everett would have fifty catches. Oh my gosh, seriously, man! I mean, like I'm and, waiting and maybe, for that train to leave the station. Yeah, and maybe he will. Maybe again, this is kind of what. Greg Cosell said, maybe it's just Shane Waldron's offense is going to take some time and we will see Gerald Everett be a hot fantasy tight end pickup in like week 11, 12, 13 because they finally, because they finally start getting him used. But yeah, I would like Russ to get the ball out of his hands quickly. I'd like to supplement it with the run game because another reason why I like the run game so much for Seattle was I loved Chris Carson, but I only love healthy Chris Carson. I don't love the Chris Carson that I've seen in the last 10, 15 games that he's played. It just doesn't seem like Chris Carson. 
Um, it's not the battering ram. I'm gonna take. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take your tackle on, and I'm gonna push you forward four yards when you when you do it. I'm gonna bounce off you. I'm not gonna step out of bounds. It just hasn't been that Chris Carson. So this 75% Chris Carson slash Alex Collins, and that doesn't really do a lot for me when you're trying to play run first offense. Yeah, I I agree, and I'm I'm encouraged to hear you say that because I I do know you're a proponent of the run game, and I gotta say I've been brought back a little bit closer to center on that myself. Uh, we had really brilliant offensive mind, Matt Nichols on last week, and he was talking about the value of the run game. Isn't just what it provides on a specific play, because if you look at things like EPA, DVOA, et cetera, there's, there's no argument in a vacuum to be made for running the ball more than passing. Passing is just more effective. But what we've seen with Seattle's offense over the last few years is there is a very specific personnel grouping and coverage that works against this passing offense and just passing more against a soft two deep shell doesn't make your passing game better we saw that second half of last season absolutely absolutely and so what matt was saying is the best way to get rid of that defense is to run the ball effectively because you then bring those safeties up close to the line of scrimmage and that opens up the deep third of the field. So uh, like I said, I've been brought back to center a little bit on that, but I also think that you can't just run because you, you believe in running. You have to run well. And Seattle has not run well since Chris Carson's got hurt. They're running for like 2.8 yards a carry. They've really won it run in one quarter. I, I took a look at it. Yeah. The third quarter against Pittsburgh is the only yep. time they ran the ball well in the last four games. <laughs> Which was totally ironic because that was the quarter that they were repeatedly shitting themselves in the entire beginning of the season. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. Totally. Well, I I agree. I, I'd like to see them lean into the pass. I'm, I'm God. I'm so worried about Chris Carson. Neck injuries are just they're they're terrifying. Um, I was pretty shaken up seeing Daryl Taylor getting strapped to that board a couple weeks ago. So I'm not counting on old Chris Carson ever again. I hope I'm wrong. I really do. I know DK Metcalf had a severe neck injury in college. It's the reason he fell as low as he did in the draft. So I'm not saying that it is the end all, but I think looking forward, the only, the only honest way to project this offense being its best is by leaning into the fact that they have Russell Wilson, DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, but do it in a way that you can still have eight to 10 play drives. Totally. I mean, yes. the, the, the three play 70 yard touchdown drive looks great on its surface, but it's not going to help your defense and it's not sustainable. Yep. So I want to zoom out a little bit. Every week we like to do a little vibe check with our guests. You've obviously covered this team closely for a long time. Now you spent many an hour breaking them down over the last number of years. How are you feeling right now about this team's overall mojo? And zooming back even a little further, how much of a crossroads do you see the franchise at this season? I think that the the criticism of Pete Carroll, I think, has been overblown, but that's not to say that it's not been deserved to some extent. I mean, they certainly have made a lot of mistakes, um, primarily trading away their first-round draft picks for – Jimmy Graham and Percy Harvin and Jamal Adams. I mean, that is a lot of first-round capital for guys that just have not produced to the level of of those trades. And then also in the the scattershot draft picks, um, particularly the guys, you know, it seems like 
the times where you run into trouble is when John Schneider in the first round, when he does have a first-round pick, kind of goes with these dudes that everybody was like, wow. I mean, that wasn't even – that guy uh-huh. wasn't even listed on my first-round board. For example, Rashad Penny, LJ Collier. I mean, those when he took those two guys in the first round, all the experts were like, Okay, you could like nice hear players, them flipping but... their pages. They're like, "Yeah, exactly. I have this like, guy on like page four. Where's this dude? You know, now <laughs> yeah. some, hey, sometimes that works out. I mean, Lofa Tatupu, the the famous. I don't remember who it, who it was, but one of the I, I think it was was it I think it was Kuiper actually. He was like, I had Lofa Tatupu as a fifth round draft pick. You know, so sometimes sometimes sure. it works, but that hasn't worked. I mean, what has worked is when John Schneider has drafted high, kind of a more conventional pick Damian Lewis DK Metcalf you know guys like that that everybody was like well yeah duh I mean they should go at that spot those guys are really good good players and and also kind of ignoring ignoring the obvious right what was our obvious need our obvious need was center Creed mm-hmm. Humphrey was there oh my gosh you know and now it was we didn't know that Creed Humphrey was going to be a all-rookie team center but he might be all ev- pro everybody thought he was really really good and we needed a center and we decided to go with Kyle Fuller and Ethan Posick again yeah so Ethan Posick another high draft pick that people were kind of thought was a random pick oh that was yeah yeah <laughs> I, I remember after the Posick pick <laughs> tweeting someone dragged Tom Cable out of the draft room yeah but <laughs> but like and, and it sucks too because the player they took instead of Creed Humphrey Dwayne Eskridge got hurt again right yeah. away. And this is just something, and I don't know, you see some teams just deal with more injuries than others. So I, I don't know how much of it's random distribution or what, but it's just another high draft pick that has gotten hurt early. I mean, Daryl Taylor missed his whole rookie year. LJ Collier missed his whole rookie year. In weird and confusing ways too. Yes. I know. Yes. Malik McDowell. I mean, Penny's been hurt a bunch. It's it's been really really tough. Marquise Blair can't stay on the field, and he's a player that I actually really like that pick. So you know that that's hurting things too. But when you're getting a bunch of good players hurt early in their career, and you're missing on the other picks, it makes it really really tough. And I this offseason is going to be so interesting for them because they've got some really big decisions to make. Uh, Contractually, they don't have draft picks to supplement holes in the roster, but they have a lot of they have a lot of money though. I think they do for the first time in a long time. Right now. Yeah, they do. And haven't you heard? According to Les Snead, draft picks are useless. Draft picks are useless. <laughs> and according to Les Snead, he's going to re-sign Von Miller. And I'm like, what with the 350 that's underneath your couch cushion? How are you going to re-sign Von Miller? <laughs> he's wearing an atrocious jersey number. He's washed anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I gotta I gotta tip my hat to the Rams, man. I do. I I was all over them after they gave Gurley and um, and Goff those huge contracts. And they traded away two firsts for Jalen Ramsey. I was like, these guys are in a bad position. They don't win right now. They're in bad position. And they have reloaded in a huge way. They've made everything come together. So I gotta I gotta tip my hat to them as, as well, much they as better, I don't want to. But they to. gotta come through though. They have to. I mean, yep. they, they 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 have to they gotta make the Super Bowl this year. They I mean, do. They have to make the Super. They have a two-year window, and if they don't make the Super Bowl or win it in the next two years, I mean, it's all for naught. I mean, what what do you what do you think the if they do make the Super Bowl? How many points do you think they're going to score? I mean, I'm going to set the over-under at three. What do you guys think? 
This is my favorite thing that you do, Mike. Matt Stafford in a Super Bowl. Um, it would be better than Jared Goff in a Super Bowl, but probably not a lot better in the Super than than Jared Goff in the Super Bowl. Yeah, we won't have to worry about running into Belichick. But if they, well, I guess they'd have to get through Todd Bowles to get to the Super Bowl. So yeah. So yeah. we'll see, but yeah, they, uh, you know, I, I thought they had a two year window two years ago and, uh, and here they are extending it. So we'll see, we'll see if Seattle can, can keep pace with that. Uh, now I know you've got your own show to prepare for here. So I really do appreciate you carving out the time, uh, and what I know is a really busy schedule for you. Uh, you're one of my favorite people to talk sports with it means a lot that you came in. Can you tell people where they can find you outside of this show? Absolutely. So uh, 3 o'clock every day, Monday through Friday, um, 9.50 KJR with Dave Softy Mahler. And, you know, we this time of year, obviously, is super busy. We bounce around locations. We're in uh, in Bellevue at the Central Bar and Grill on Thursdays. We're at the Emerald Queen Casino uh, with their hopefully their sports book opening really, really soon uh, yeah. on Monday nights before Monday Night Football. And, uh, you know, we're at the at UW on Wednesdays right before the Jimmy Lake show. So we're kind of bouncing all over the place. But uh, And then, obviously, when storm season starts at Climate Pledge Arena next year, I am Let's so go. fired up uh, to be at – be at Climate Pledge Arena next uh, next May for the beginning of the storm season. So uh, you'll see me on uh, either Joe TV or uh, or uh, Fox 13, one of the two that'll be uh, carrying our games next year. How's the team looking this year? Well, let's find out if Sue Bird decides to retire or not. I mean, that obviously is a big uh, that's a big decision. Uh, Brianne will be uh, healthy again, and when you've got you know when you got a superstar, I mean, she's you know for for people that are not WNBA fans but are but are NBA fans, I mean. You, she's Kevin Durant. I mean, she's the, she's that type of player. I mean, she's, she makes that type of impact and, and Jewel Lloyd has, uh, has elevated her game to be a, be a first team, all WNBA player as well. So uh, as long as you're riding those two, you're going to be really, really good. They just need to stay healthy. And I would love to see one more year of Sue at, uh, at yeah. least one more year of Sue at climate pledge. That'd be cool to have her play there. I think we all would. Well, we'll definitely be watching and, and listening for you on that. Guys, again, I want to thank everyone listening uh, for supporting the show, whether it's here, on Twitter, Facebook, through the reviews you leave, and of course, reading the column every week. You can find me on Twitter at Jackson Bevins. Remember, that's J-A-C-S-O-N. And if your Seahawks feed feels a little too normal, feel free to follow Mike at at Mike Barwin to weird it up a bit. There you go. The show itself is at Cigar Thoughts, and you can find us on Instagram at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seattle Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fuelgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. We're heading into a bye week, so uh, we're all going to chill out a little bit. I think it's time to <laughs> spend Sunday with family, friends, being something other than a total degenerate, uh, at least for myself. And, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be back soon. But uh, in the meantime, please, if you like the show, leave us a five-star review on the podcast platform of your choice. Uh, we're really proud of the show. We're grateful for all the support it's got so far. And that kind of feedback just it means a lot to us as we continue to try and grow and improve this. And uh, don't forget that before every game, we are going to be doing a Twitter live where you can come on, ask your questions, uh, and just chat a little bit with us in the moment about what it is we're looking for for each game. And then, of course, we are doing the audio reading of every article right after it publishes. So you can listen to it on the go if you don't have time to pop the laptop open. That's going to do it for today. Dick, thank you again for your time. You bet. All right, folks. Enjoy your off week. We'll catch you soon. <laughs>